This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. One of the few downsides of outdoor life is getting bitten by mosquitoes. But how do mosquitoes locate their hosts? Some evidence suggests that color or odor may help mosquitoes in detecting the location of hosts and mates. But these studies have been contradictory and inconclusive. In a recent study, four scientists drew upon a diverse set of tools and approaches to untangle which of the many possible triggers mosquitoes might use. In a recent issue of the journal Nature Communications, they describe the elegant set of experiments that pinpoint extremely specific and some surprising cues that mosquitoes use to hunt and locate their prey. Today, we'll speak with one of the scientists. Our guest today, Claire Roosh, is a neuroscientist and ethologist who studies how the environment is processed by the nervous system to control behavior. Claire, welcome. Hi, Naini. Thanks. I'm very glad to be here. Claire, I, I found your article about mosquitoes just fascinating from so many angles. But but before we discuss the specifics of your study, I'd like to kind of envision where, where you carry out research and where you are. I know that you carried out this mosquito research at the University of Washington, but then headed for Portugal. Can you start us off by telling us your current research setting and, and where you are now? Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm actually right now working in Portugal, in Lisbon, at the Chabalimo Foundation, and uh, I switched from mosquito to flies, but I'm still very interested in the same big question of how insects uh, interact with the environment and how their brain is processing all this uh, information. When I read in your article that only female mosquitoes suck blood, I, I went, oh, that's right, only mosqui- only females. And I, I sort of forgot what the the basic biology of the mosquito is. And I was wondering if, before we get into the specifics of your article, if you could kind of remind us about the life cycle of a mosquito. Yeah, sure. So as you say, only female bites. And it's because only female need the blood to get protein from so they can lay their eggs. It's kind of uh, very important for them to have those protein, whereas to feed, just feeding as we would eat us, they eat a lot of nectar, sugar from flowers, for example. Uh, but yeah, blood is only for females. And so so what, uh, you mentioned that they, they look for food as well, that is the males and the females have to seek out food that might come from flowers. So I guess we have to think about how they locate those flowers as well. Yeah, indeed. And the same cue may be very important to uh, locate the flowers or locate their prey. So for a lot of mosquitoes, their prey would be us human. Uh, and it can be, as you say in the beginning, the colors, the smells, and there's a lot of different uh, cue that may be important. We, we'd love to think about how one scientific study nearly always happens by by one study building on the foundations of other previous studies. And I was wondering, what is the earlier evidence that provided the foundation for your study? So it's super interesting because there's been a ton of work with uh, colors and not necessarily mosquito, but over like uh, vector disease insect, but 30 years ago. And then not so much happened for a long time. And recently, mosquito research have been blooming. Like a lot of very cool people, very cool scientists have started to study that. <laughs> like you, like, like you. We, yes. like we, but also <laughs> a, a lot of other people. <laughs> and we realized uh, that something super cool was happening is that mosquito needs CO2 
to the female needs CO2 to uh, locate their, their prey. Like uh, you have to introduce CO2 to get a behavior from them. So before we get to the results, I was wondering if you could, um, you know, getting back to the paper, what could you tell us is sort of the main question or questions that you and your colleagues were posing? Yeah, so uh, we saw that CO2 was super important and we were like, okay, we know CO2 is important. We know temperature by previous work. We knew temperature of our skin is very important. We know the odor of our sweat is very important, but nothing was known about color vision. So we really wanted to go look at that and be like, okay, maybe there is a specific color that is super attractive to them. And if we found it, maybe we can make better um, trap uh, so we can eliminate more mosquito in areas that there is too much of them. I see. Okay, great. Thanks for that. And I noticed also that you worked with, with one species of mosquito, um, Aedes aegyptes. And I was wondering why you chose why you chose that particular species of mosquito. Was there something special about that particular species? Uh, that's a very good question. So um, for me, it was because it was a species that my lab was already uh, working on. And I think it's the most common species that people are working on right now in the United States uh, because it's the uh, yellow fever uh, mosquitoes, so very bad for humans. Uh, we also try to study a couple more mosquitoes. We mostly focus on mosquitoes that are uh, carrying human disease, but there is a lot more mosquito outside. Um, one thing I'm always really interested in when I read a research paper is the sort of the equipment and the paraphernalia and the experimental apparatus that scientists come up with in order to answer their questions. And it seemed that there was, um, there was work that you did with a wind tunnel that was fundamental to some of your experiments. And I myself have never seen a wind tunnel. And I'm wondering if you could describe it for, for me and for our listeners. Yeah, for sure. So uh, it's wind tunnel is basically just a big cage where you are able to blow air inside. And there's a lot of different size of wind tunnel. Uh, ours was a couple more meter long. I know that there are wind tunnels that are used for uh, study on birds that are like tens of meters long. Yes. So ours was, was a little smaller, like mosquito, uh, a good size for mosquito. We were able to release like 50, 2000, uh, 200, sorry. We were able to release uh, around 50 uh, female mosquito at a time. And so you have this I see. big cage where you're blowing hair inside. And so the mosquito can fly around. It's completely free. It can do whatever it wants. And then you can, I don't know, blow orders, uh, present visual uh, stimulus as we did, uh, and see how the mosquito uh, react. And you have a lot of cameras all around this big cage that are recording what the animals are doing inside. So, so you also described um, in your methods section uh, sort of a visual uh, analysis system. And I wonder if you could describe that. That is, I, I'm presuming that you use these visual uh, videos of the flying mosquitoes inside the wind tunnel as your as sort of your raw data. Is, is that right? Exactly. That, that's correct. We have those multiple cameras that are filming at the same time. And then we combine the image to get a 3D trajectory of the mosquitoes where we are able then to like, oh, maybe they're flying more on this part of the wind tunnel near those colors or not that much over this part with these colors. Wow, that's incredible. That must have been both sort of, I mean, what I love about your study is this combination of the basic biology of this organism 
and then the the kind of technical apparatus and analysis that you had to do in order to understand and interpret what was going on there. Yeah, and it's where you can see that science is really all about collaboration between different uh, fields. I was the one that is more about the behavior of the mosquito, and my co-author, Diego Alonso San Alberto, is an engineer and was the one that did this wind tunnel setup because it's a lot of engineering, as you can imagine. Yes. Your study really exemplifies the need for this kind of collaborative interdisciplinary work. And I'm wondering, looking at your research team, two of you from the U.S., two from Germany, how did you go about assembling your team and finding the right people, the right scientists to come together to address this question? So I think it's all about uh, the expertise of the people. So people in Germany were the one that developed the software that we use to track mosquitoes. Uh, we have collaborators in the U.S. that were very good in genetics, so they were able to do some mutant mosquitoes for us because that's not our expertise at all. So it was really like getting around and be like, okay, we want to study that. What do we need? We need this tool. Okay, let's contact those people, and, and that's how we get this group together. I wonder if you could describe the sort of elegant set of experiments that you and your colleagues designed to untangle different cues, the visual cues versus the odor cues that these mosquitoes might be using. How did you actually parse apart whether it was visual or whether it was it was odor? So what we did is releasing all those mosquitoes in our big cage, and we present different colors, and we look at the response of the mosquito, and basically where are they landing. And what we did is present different colors and uh, see what what is the one they preferred? Uh, let's say I'm going to present a blue disc and a red disc. And I'm going to look where are the female mosquito going. And what we saw is the female mosquito are going to red and they don't care as much about blue. So that is the first, the first thing that tell us they like red. So that sort of separates out the, the cues of different colors. And, and what did you find there? Were there certain colors that were preferred versus those that weren't preferred? Exactly, yeah. And it was very surprising for us. We did those experiments thinking like, oh, let's see if there is some color that mosquito prefer, but we didn't expect to see something very strong. And we found very surprising results. We found that mosquitoes, at least the Aedes aegypti, they did mm -hmm. not care about green, blue, and purple. They didn't like those mm. colors. At least oh. the female that want bloods don't like these colors. Whereas if you present them cyan, red, or orange, they loved it. Now, there's also this other layer of cues which involve odor or olfactory signals. And I wonder if you could talk about that. What is it that, that a mosquito can smell that might attract or not attract uh, this mosquito? It's super interesting to see that mosquito, if you don't provide them some odors, they're just not going to care about what you uh, what the visual stimulus uh, stimulus are. So for example, you need to put in this big cage, you need to put CO2 to make them behave. And it's very interesting because we are always uh, expulsing CO2 with our breath. So every yes, time every breath we breathe. Smell, exactly. So this is very important for mosquitoes. They're going to smell basically your breath and, and come to you. But if they don't smell it, they're not going to go um, 
yeah, they're not going to go towards uh, a specific color. So it seems like then over evolutionary time, these mosquitoes have evolved to cue in on some sort of warm-blooded animal that is exuding carbon dioxide. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And what we expect is that maybe maybe mosquitoes that are attracted to uh, like over animal that maybe are not producing as much CO2 as we do, they're not going to be as attracted to this odor. And so it's, it's sort of like a one-two punch then that the first trigger or the first cue might be the presence of carbon dioxide, but then they have a secondary cue that involves their choice of color. Am I interpreting that right? Yeah, yeah we think that's the case. And we think there are even more layers because we know that if you put some temperature, some warm on your uh, visual cue, they're going to be even more attracted. So for example, if we present something at the uh, human temperature, 37 degrees Celsius, they're going to be very interested. And we also know that there are odors on or sweat that are very interesting to them. So if you don't want to get bitten by a mosquito on your next picnic, then you should hold your breath and, and just lie down so that you're not sweating and, and providing and wearing green or blue or purple and not wearing red or yellow or some of the brighter colors. Exactly. That, that is yeah. fascinating. And it, I mean, it's so interesting. And then there was another really interesting part of your paper, which involved um, your use of mutant genes. Tell us about that. So we decided to use mutants um, of m- mosquitoes that have different vision skills. Like basically what we did is we shut down the way they would be able to see uh, or visual cues. And we look at what is their reaction. Like do they need the specific part in the eyes to be able to go toward the cues? So that means there must be different genetic lines of these mosquitoes that have the capacity to see color or not see color. And you were, your study was able to take advantage of that. Yeah. And it's a, it's a work that has been done before that. It's actually or a genetic collaborator that should just before paper that the mosquito needs specific opsin, which are protein in the eyes, to be able to go toward uh, the cues and try to feed on, on something. I guess that, again, is, you know, this sort of the benefits of collaboration that you have this expert in genetics to be able to work with you on that. That's that's fantastic. Um, I want to go back to the this biting of warm blooded animals and wondering whether is it just humans that mosquitoes draw blood from or do other warm blooded mammals like dogs or cats also experience mosquito bites? Yeah, over uh, basically, it's the fascinating nature. Know that every time there is a niche, you will find an animal. So every, every there's a lot of different mosquitoes and they all have very specific hosts. So you have mosquitoes that bite birds. Mm-hmm. And so there are going to be very different uh, species for very different uh, prey. I was wondering, you know, and, and so you looked at this one species of, of Aedes aegyptus, and I'm wondering whether whether you can extrapolate to other species of, of mosquitoes or other genera um, is, are you able to sort of make that jump or would that require sort of new experiments and other studies in order to see how other species or genera of mosquitoes respond to cues? So I think it's really depending on the species because what we saw is that if we use just another species like Anaphilis, we saw yes. that it was not the same colors, like they're not attracted to the same things. 
And it kind of makes sense because they're not active at the same time of the day. So they are very looking at a very different world. I, I want to go back now to the uh, the idea of the study itself and the sort of the mechanics of, of of your study with your colleagues. And you know, when you when you read a scientific paper like yours, um, especially one that's so clearly written, everything seems to sort of have gone through smooth sailing. <laughs> but I know that every study I know of has glitches and hitches and times when you think or you scream like, "Oh my God, this is not working." I was wondering if there were any moments like that for you or your colleagues on the study where you felt like, "Wow, this is not going to work," or or was it smooth sailing throughout? Definitely not smooth sailing. It's never, as you say, it's never smooth sailing. Uh, it took us quite some times to get the um, camera and the big cage working. Like it was very hard, and at some point we thought we were never going to be able to do it. And when we saw some something that's really uh, was both amazing, but also ask us a lot of questions is when we saw that mosquito like red. Uh, maybe I can expand a little bit on, on that. Uh-huh. Yes, please. It's because insect, we think we have this big uh, in the field. We think that insect, most insect don't see red. Like they are not able to perceive those long wavelengths. Uh, They're they're usually their perception, we think, are very shift towards shorter wavelengths. So when we saw this result of mosquito being attracted to red, we're like, oh, we have a problem. Like, (laughs) yeah, because we thought it was an artifact. Like it was, no, it's not possible. It must be something else. So... That made our study very powerful because we started to do all this control with different level of black to be sure they were seeing the color and not the gray level of the color. I see. So you were sort of making these little discoveries as you went along that, that sort of guided and re-guided you in terms of the design of the experiments that you were doing. Exactly, yeah. And I'm wondering about how much you can relate what you now know about this particular mosquito and its particular cues. So we know that many organisms are capable of using color or olfaction to guide their behavior, uh, either to food or to mates or to some sort of aspect of their behavior. And I'm wondering how your study, which related to this one particular species of, of mosquito, might relate to that bigger question of how how organisms do respond or do interact with light and olfaction cues. Yeah, I think our study, and, and it's been something very important in the field right now, is it's really show that we need to put all the cues possible at the same time. Because we tend to study, you know, we tend to study all fiction by itself, or vision by itself, or I don't know, taste by itself, like really separating all those uh, sensory modality. And with our work, we really show, yeah, no, they're interacting. And we really need to be looking at those behavior in a multimodal, as we say, multimodal way. Multimodal. That's a great word. Yes. Right. And I think that your study really did take into account those, that multimodal aspect of, 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 sen- of these sensory cues. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, sort of back to some practical applications, I'm wondering, um, you know, I've often hiked with people who seem to be more vulnerable to mosquito bites than me, and meaning that they start complaining about mosquitoes even before I realized that they were around. And I'm wondering if there's some truth to people being 
more versus less attractive to mosquitoes. Can you talk about that? Uh, that's a very good question. And it's a very odd topic right now in the field too. Yes. So it's very hard to know if people are more sensitive or really more attractive. You know, because maybe oh. you get bitten, but you're not even realizing it. And your friend is bitten and it creates this huge allergic reaction. And so every bite is very strong for, for them. So you have this part that we don't really know what's what's going on there. But it also seems that some people attract mosquito more. And there are labs in the U.S. that are looking at maybe odor, specific odor in your sweat that make you more attractive than other people. But it's it's hard to know what's really going going on here. Got it. Well, I guess I won't be able to have an explanation at this moment for uh, my fellow hikers who seem to be more or less bite vulnerable than I am. Another question I had was that we were talking about carbon dioxide and the fact that mosquitoes are responding to gradients in, in carbon dioxide and that they're attracted to more concentrated areas of carbon dioxide. And and with this, uh, you know, with our knowledge that carbon dioxide in general is increasing in the atmosphere, uh, due to human activities, I'm wondering whether this increase that we're experiencing actually if, might affect the interaction of mosquitoes and their hosts. Is that too small a signal or is that something that we need to think about? I think it's a very good question. We should think about it, but I think it's also all about the relative level. As long as you're, you know, like the mosquito is able to do the difference between what you're expulsing and the average level in the environment. And it's really what's but it's going to pay attention. I'm wondering, you know, if, if you're asked by a member of the public, why should we care about your work? What's your response to that? What are the sort of societal implications or the, the applications for, for sort of the general public that might come out of your research? Mosquitoes are the deadliest species for human on Earth. Like, they kill a lot more human than any other animal species because they're a vector of all those pretty bad diseases. And going back to what we talk about, the CO2 level, it's going to rise. Temperature are rising. So the mosquitoes are getting more and more all around the world. Oh, oh wow. And we saw this with Zika, no? Because we saw it was going both in the south and the northern hemisphere. So more and more people are going to get bitten by mosquito, and we need to find ways to reduce the transmission of those pretty deadly diseases. Wow. Well, that, that certainly emphasizes the need for both basic research and also the application of it. And I think this is a perfect study to, to sort of demonstrate that, that interconnection between basic and applied research. Looking at your own background, Claire, I know that you're an expert in neuroscience and in ethology, the study of behavior. And so that expertise can really take you in many different directions. And I'm, I'm wondering, what is next for you? What are the next questions that you want to explore and discover? So I'm still very much asking the same question about those multimodal cues and all the brain is able to integrate them in an insect. And I did a lot of work at the University of Washington on mosquito, but also on honeybees, which is pretty cool too. Uh, and now I'm moving to a more genetic model, the fruit fly, the very famous Drosophila melanogaster, to ask those questions and really look at the brain and oh, oh, the brain is integrating vision and motion and olfaction. Got it. The last question I'd like to ask you is about um, what you would recommend for others, especially those who are 
kind of starting out on their careers in in areas of science that concern neuroscience or behavior. I'm wondering what what advice you might have or or what comments you might make to them in terms of what you know now about working in these fields. Uh, I guess my main advice is to find mentors. I think it's a very, and I think it's all across different fields. No, it's something very important in academies, find good mentors. So if you read a paper and you're like, wow, I love this study, I love this animal, I would love to work on that. Well, you should really try to contact those people because usually scientists are very happy to talk about our own work. Like it's something we do very easily. <laughs> that is fantastic advice. I love that advice. You know, I remember when I was a little graduate student and I you know, would read a paper and I would just be terrified of trying to contact that person for some idiotic reason. But I think you're absolutely right that, that senior scientists and people in academia in general are so delighted to find people who share their interests and, and, and serve in some sort of supportive way. So that I think is terrific advice for a young person starting out. Yeah, don't be afraid to send those emails. Worst case scenario, they don't answer you. Perfect. That's perfect. Claire, I want to thank you so much for sharing with us this fascinating piece of scientific research. And we wish you the best for your work in the future in Portugal and beyond. Thank you so much. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.